What a joy it is to worship together and praise the name of Jesus. He's our risen Savior and Lord, and he deserves our adoration, especially on this special day we set aside to celebrate his resurrection. If you have your Bible nearby, would you please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be reading a few verses in just a few moments. And with this text as our backdrop, today I would like to share with you why I believe in the resurrection. The Guinness Book of World Records tells us that the most successful trial lawyer to ever live was Sir Lionel Luckhu. Before his death in 1997, at the age of 83, Luckhu had succeeded in getting 245 consecutive murder acquittals. That is 245 winning cases in a row. No other lawyer before or after him has even come close to this amazing courtroom record. Even to this day, he is still esteemed as a world-class expert on what constitutes reliable, permissible, and persuasive evidence. Now, wouldn't it be interesting if we could get an opinion on the evidence for Jesus' resurrection from a celebrated legal authority like Laku? In fact... In his own spiritual journey, Laku used his skills as an attorney to personally examine the data, and in his own words, here is what he concluded. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof that leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Wow. Science and common sense tell us that dead people do not come back to life again. Yet here we have the most successful lawyer to ever live applying the legal test of evidence to the historical counts of Jesus' resurrection and concluding with complete confidence that Jesus did indeed rise again. Why I believe in the resurrection. Like Sir Lionel Lucku, we need to examine the evidence for ourselves. We owe it to ourselves to know why we believe or why we do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection is the clinching proof of who Jesus is. It's the very foundation of Christian faith. The Apostle Paul knew that to be true. Follow along with me in your Bible as I read his take on the critical importance of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, we begin with verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Down to verse 12. 
But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we're then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Why believe in the resurrection? This morning, let's look at some of the courtroom evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Obviously, this topic is so much bigger than what we have time to investigate today in a single sermon, but let's at least touch on some of the more critical points of evidence. Here are some reasons why we can believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, proving himself to be the Son of God and establishing Christianity as the one and the only way. Evidence number one, Jesus' death. Before we cite evidence for Jesus' resurrection, we must first be sure that he died. At the beginning of the 19th century, there was a man by the name of Paulus who made an attempt to explain away the resurrection by asserting that Jesus never really died on the cross, but he merely swooned or fainted, fooling his friends and enemies into believing that he was dead. And then after his burial, Jesus regained consciousness, escaped from the tomb, appeared to his followers, and deceived them into believing that he had risen. So what about this so-called swoon theory. Did Jesus really die that day on the cross? Well, the evidence to support his death is so overwhelmingly convincing. All four Gospels agree that Jesus died using words like gave up the ghost or breathed his last. The centurion who was given charge over the crucifixion confirmed that Jesus was dead. Pilate, who had ordered the crucifixion in the first place, even double-checked to make sure that Jesus had died. The soldiers who actually carried out the crucifixion, they had no doubts Jesus was dead. In fact, the Bible tells us after the soldiers broke the legs of the thieves on either side of Jesus, they saw that Jesus was already dead, and so instead they pierced his side with a spear and outflowed a mixture of blood and water, a sure indication of death according to medical science. Joseph and Nicodemus, who prepared Jesus' body for burial, knew that Jesus had died. The women who went to the tomb on Sunday morning to anoint the dead body of Jesus, they knew he was dead. Even secular historical accounts of that day account for the reality of Jesus' death. Besides, when you really stop to think of the swoon theory carefully, does it make very much sense? No. I mean, could Jesus, who had been through the scourging and beating that he experienced, then had been nailed to the cross for all of those hours, somehow fainted and then revived himself in the tomb and had the strength to roll away the stone, overcome the soldiers, and then appear to his followers with any kind of convincing proof that he was risen? That's crazy. So it's entirely ridiculous to suppose that Jesus did not die. 
Knowing this, let's move on to evidence number two. Jesus claims. Many, many times during his ministry, while he was still alive, Jesus publicly and openly claimed that he would die and then rise again. Here's just a few examples just from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. And so Jesus claimed, that he would rise again. This was his pre-announced, premeditated plan. And this bold prediction lends incredible support to the case for believing in the resurrection. In fact, the angel at the tomb appealed back to what Jesus had claimed in Luke 24, verses 6 and 7. He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be crucified and on the third day be raised again. One commentator sums up the importance of Jesus' claims when he writes, when he said that he himself would rise again from the dead the third day after he was crucified, he said something that only a fool would dare say unless he was sure he was going to rise again. No founder of any world religion known to men ever dared say a thing like that. Nobody else could say a thing like that. Moving on, we come to evidence number three, and that's Jesus' tomb. It's a fact that cannot be denied that Jesus died and was buried. All four Gospels, as well as some secular accounts, describe the burial in great detail. So let's go to the scene of the crime, so to speak. Let's go to Jesus' tomb and let's examine the material evidence that we find there. And the first thing we notice is the displaced stone. Again, all four Gospels agree that the stone which was rolled in front of the entrance to the tomb and sealed on Friday was rolled away on Sunday morning. Historians tell us that the average stone weighed in excess of a ton and once they were rolled in front of a tomb's entrance they would settle into a trough or a ditch that had been dug there. Kind of like clunk. So, how was the stone displaced? The women could not have moved it. In fact, as they made their way to the tomb to anoint Jesus' burial, they were uh, discuss, discussing among themselves who could roll it away, and then they were surprised to find that it was already displaced. And the disciples certainly could not have secretly moved it, certainly without causing a great disturbance, even if the guards were supposedly asleep. So how was the stone displaced? I submit to you that something supernatural happened on that first Easter Sunday morning. The displaced stone. What other evidence can be found at Jesus' tomb? Well, as we enter into the tomb itself, we find the abandoned grave clothes. John 20 goes into great detail describing these grave clothes. This empty shroud, I believe, lends evidence to the resurrection. 
The Apostle John writes in John 20 and verse 8 that he actually believed in the resurrection when he saw the abandoned grave clothes. Why? Well, not only were the strips of linen that had wrapped Jesus' body lying there empty, but the cloth napkin that had wrapped Jesus' head, we're told it was neatly folded and that it lay separate from the strips of linen. Now, why is that significant? Well, in order to understand the significance of the folded napkin, we need to understand a little bit about Hebrew tradition in that day. The folded napkin had to do with the master and servant, and every Jewish boy knew this tradition. When the servant set the dinner table for the master, he made sure that it was exactly as the master wanted it. The table was furnished perfectly, and then the servant would wait, just out of sight, until the master had finished eating. The servant would not dare touch the table until the master was finished. Now, if the master was finished eating, then he would rise from the table, he would wipe his fingers in his mouth, he would clean his beard, and then he would wad up the napkin and he would just toss it onto the table. The servant knew that that was the signal that it was time to clear the table. For in those days, the wadded napkin meant, I'm finished. But, if the master got up from the table and folded his napkin and laid it beside the plate, the servant would not dare touch the table because the folded napkin meant, I'm coming back. <laughs> Think about that. Jesus neatly folded the linen napkin, sending a clear message to anybody who entered the tomb, I'm coming back. <laughs> I'm alive. And that was all the evidence that John needed to believe. The displaced stone, the abandoned grave clothes. What else do we find at the tomb? Nothing. <laughs> and that is the point. It's the evidence of the empty tomb itself. The truth is, we must explain the empty tomb. The four Gospels agree that although Jesus' dead body was placed in the tomb on Friday, it was not there on Sunday. Even Jesus' enemies did not attempt to explain away the obvious. The tomb was empty. In fact, any attempt to explain the empty tomb is in fact an admission that the tomb was empty. Now, of course, there have been over the years several attempts to explain how the tomb became empty. The disciples stole the body. Actually, that story was fabricated by the Jews themselves in Matthew 28. The soldiers were told to say that Jesus' followers stole his body while he was sleeping. Now, wait a minute. Imagine giving this kind of testimony on the witness stand in a courtroom. The cross-examination would cut this to pieces. So, tell me, how do you know that the disciples stole the body if you were sleeping. <laughs> Hello. Besides, the disciples were hiding in fear for their very own lives at this time. They didn't expect the resurrection, even though Jesus had told them it was going to come. They were surprised to find the tomb empty. They didn't even believe the first resurrection reports. And to top it all off, they had absolutely nothing to gain by stealing the body. What good would it have done them? 
So then somebody else said, well, the enemies stole the body. Huh? I mean, how do you steal something that you already have? They already had the body. To steal it would have defeated their purpose in sealing the tomb and posting a guard. Most importantly, the enemies... Uh, if the enemy stole Jesus' body, then why, when the disciples began to proclaim the resurrection publicly, why didn't they just simply produce the body and parade it up and down the streets of Jerusalem and forever silence the nonsense of the resurrection? It's because they didn't have the body. Okay. Somebody else says, well, the women went to the wrong tomb. <laughs> No way. Both Mark and Luke describe to us how the women watched where Joseph and Nicodemus buried Jesus' body on Friday. Besides, there's strong evidence in Scripture that this was a private garden tomb, not a public cemetery. Add to that the angels at the tomb, were they lost? <laughs> and finally, if they went to the wrong tomb, then let me ask once again, why didn't Jesus' enemies simply point out the right tomb when the resurrection began to be proclaimed? So our crime scene investigation at the site of the tomb leads us to the evidence of the displaced stone, the abandoned grave clothes, and the empty tomb itself, all providing strong evidence for the resurrection. But we're not finished yet. Evidence number four, Jesus' appearances. One critic rightly said, an empty tomb does not a resurrection make. And that's true. Even though the tomb was empty does not in and of itself prove that Jesus rose from the dead. That is why Jesus' post-resurrection appearances are so critical to the evidence. For 40 days after his resurrection and prior to his ascension, Jesus appeared in flesh and bone on at least 11 different occasions recorded for us in the Bible. Now I'm sure that those weren't the only times that Jesus actually appeared. These are just the ones we have recorded in Scripture. And as we look at those Appearances, let me just make a few observations. First, these witnesses were over 500 in number. This wasn't just a single hallucinating individual, nor was it a handful of wishful thinkers. This was over 500 credible men and women who could give firsthand eyewitness testimony to seeing Jesus alive. If the rule of thumb is that a fact is established in a court of law by the testimony of two or three witnesses, imagine calling over 500 witnesses to testify. Just to put that in perspective, if each witness and the cross-examination of each witness were to only take 15 minutes and you were to begin on Monday morning at breakfast and continue around the clock 24 hours a day without stopping, the last witness would not take his or her place on the witness stand until Friday evening at dinner 129 hours later. These eyewitnesses would overwhelmingly convince any jury in any country on the face of this earth of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Another thing I want to point out about these witnesses is that they were doubters at first. I've actually had people argue with me that the reason these people saw Jesus was because they so badly desired to do so. No, they didn't. <laughs> They didn't even expect 
the resurrection. And when Jesus first appeared to some of them, they didn't even recognize him, though he walked alongside them on the road to Emmaus. One last observation about these eyewitnesses. These men and women were martyrs for their faith. Many of these eyewitnesses gave their lives for what they knew to be the truth. Jesus is alive. Now, the minute that I say that, I can just hear someone argue that people give their lives for religious causes all the time. Zealots and fanatics fill up trucks with bombs and drive them into embassies. Suicide bombers blow themselves up. We see it all the time in the news. So, what's so unusual about someone dying for what they believe? Well, here's the difference. Don't miss this. People will willingly die for something that they sincerely believe is true even if it's sincerely wrong. However, people will not, no, never die for something when they know that it's absolutely false. If these eyewitnesses had not seen Jesus in the flesh, if there was any doubt whatsoever that he had risen from the dead, these men and women would have never given their lives. People never die for what they know is a lie. But because they had seen Jesus and they had walked with him and talked with him and eaten with him, they knew that he had risen. They were willing to give their lives for what they knew was the truth. And the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus were the clinching proof that these witnesses needed. Well, there's one more piece of evidence I want to talk about, and that's evidence number five, Jesus' influence. Although subjective, when you add this piece of evidence on top of the other four, it cannot be ignored. John R. W. Stott wrote, Perhaps the transformation of the disciples is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. On the day of the crucifixion, they were filled with sadness. On the first day of the week, with gladness. At the crucifixion, they were hopeless. On the first day of the week, their hearts glowed with certainty and hope. When the message of the, first re of the resurrection first came, they were incredulous and hard to convince. But once they were assured, they never doubted again. What could account for the astonishing change in these men in so short a time? Only the resurrection. And Jesus' influence lives on today. He's been changing lives for the past 21 centuries and his influence through his church continues to this day. He's changing lives. He's healing broken homes and restoring fractured marriages. He's comforting those in sorrow and loneliness. He's giving hope to the hopeless. He's bringing purpose and meaning to lives that are filled with chaos and stress. He is giving peace and assurance in the midst of a topsy-turvy COVID-19 world. He's delivering people from bondage to alcohol and drugs. He is offering life abundant and eternal to anyone who will choose to embrace him as Savior and Lord. And I stand before you this morning to testify with the greatest assurance and confidence that Jesus Christ has transformed my life. Perhaps the hymn writer put it best in the song that we sang earlier today. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today he walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. He asks me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. He's alive. I know this to be true because I have experienced him personally.
Why believe in the resurrection? This morning we've taken a closer look at some of the courtroom evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And believe me, we have barely even scratched the surface. Some of the reasons why we can believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, proving himself to be the Son of God and establishing Christianity as the one and only way, Jesus' death, Jesus' tomb, Jesus' claims, Jesus' appearances, Jesus' influence. All this evidence and so much more pointing to the fact that something supernatural took place on that first Easter Sunday morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the way, remember Sir Lionel Luckhoo, the most successful trial lawyer in all of history? Well, after examining the courtroom evidence and concluding with complete confidence that Jesus did indeed rise again, luck who did what any logical or rational person would do in the face of this truth. He committed his life to Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and Lord. He became a Christian. And my prayer is that all of us would do the same. And if you'd like to know more about how to become a Christian, I encourage you to visit our website, springvillenaz.com, and click on the About. And then in that drop-down menu, click on Becoming a Christian. It'll guide you through how you can make the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. And once you've made that decision, and we would sure love for you to let us know about it, there's a link right there on the website that you can... Just send us a message. Let us know that you've made this life-changing decision in your life. Well, let me wrap up our celebration of Jesus' resurrection by reading his own words, John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Here's what Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die like everyone else, will live again. They are given eternal life for believing in me and will never 